Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another We Are UTL Paso program. Today, I'm back over in the College of Education talking to someone I've known for about 15 years, ever since she arrived on the campus, I believe. Her name is Erica Mean, and she is, amongst other things, a professor of teacher education in that college. And we'll come on to other things that she's branching into, but that'll do for an introduction. So, Erica, welcome. I'm glad to be here. Now, tell me, um, we don't want to get straight into teacher education and your role in this and how you chose it. Well, how, yes. You're a kid. What were you thinking as a child? What did you do as a child that prepared you, if anything, for a career as a, a professor at a university? Well, I, I grew up in Florida and Virginia. My childhood was in Florida, adolescence in Virginia, and I, I came from a family of educators. My mom was a public school teacher and then later became a school administrator. My dad was a school psychologist and later had a private practice. And so I was early on very influenced by, by my family, by my immediate family. My parents also came from large families. And so I was very influenced by uh, my extended family, aunts, uncles, and cousins, and especially my paternal grandfather, who was born and raised in Brazil to missionaries, English missionaries in Brazil, um, and immigrated to the United States um, in his late teens, um, became a medical doctor, served in War World War II, um, and then later went back to Brazil to serve as a doctor um, in the Amazon rainforest, and that's where my dad was born. Oh, and brilliant. so I was, all, yeah, I mean, I was always very fascinated um, by- but you, you were born in the U.S. But I was born in the you, U.S. They came back to the U.S., and my dad actually ended up spending most of his childhood and all of his adulthood um, in the U.S. So I was born in Florida, you know, um, but was always- intrigued by, fascinated by this this kind of branch of my family and wanted to learn more. Um, and so yeah, probably as more as an adolescent than as a kid, but um, wanted to learn more about Latin America. And um, in college, um, I studied history with a focus on Latin American history and started taking Spanish classes. And I was determined <laughs> to learn Spanish um, and determined to live uh, well, in Latin you, America. Why didn't you determine to learn Portuguese? That's a great I question. Mean, that's... Right, right. The direct connection with my family would have been Portuguese. That's right. Um, but there's a pragmatic side of me uh -huh. and I really wanted to learn Spanish because of the utility also here. I was very interested in working in immigrant communities in the United States um, and did that starting in, in college as an undergraduate, worked in um, migrant farm worker communities um, in, in rural Virginia. I went to school at the University of Virginia. Um, and so there's a lot of apple picking and orchards in that area. Mm -hmm. So that's, so I was very, you know, I very much wanted to be able to communicate. And so that's where Spanish became more useful okay, in that case lovely. than Portuguese. And, and did you ever try apple picking or, or farm work yourself? Very, very difficult work. Oh, and the I, work, I, I mean, just, did it as a student yeah, in England. Potato yeah. picking was particularly egregious. Right. Anyway, so you, you had all those sort of ideas in the back of your mind. Did you do extra? things when you were a, a student? Athletics or drama or? You know, it's interesting that you say that. The extra things were really working. I They had a very um, organized volunteer and service program at UVA. And so I got involved with that from my very first year. And that's how I got connected with the work um, in migrant farm worker communities. It was education work. So teaching ESL, um, working also in the schools with migrant, the, the children of migrant farm workers there. 
And I, you know, it was because of that in part, I knew I wanted to go away. I wanted to study abroad because um, I wanted to also develop my, my Spanish. And so my junior year, I thought I was going to study abroad and it kind of fell through at the last minute. And so I ended up taking a semester off and doing a volunteer experience in Ecuador. Um, it was a semester long experience and I lived actually in an indigenous community, in the Quechua community in the Amazon rainforest of, of Ecuador. Um, and I was supposedly there to do, I mean, it was a volunteer experience. I was supposedly there to be a, a teacher. And I absolutely, I mean, yes, I worked in the school. Yes, I worked with the kids. But I was very much a learner of the culture, language, well, that, way of life. That's the whole issue of a year abroad, especially right. uh, with an indigenous community right. or whatever. You're, you're learning far more from those people, that society, than the other way around. 100%. Unless you know something about engineering and can dig holes effectively. It was a very humbling experience yes. in so many ways um, and very kind of, you know, very, very eye-opening in so many ways. Um, so, yes, and, and that's where I think that's probably maybe the work with, with in the communities, um, the, the migrant farm worker communities, but especially um, spending that semester in Ecuador is where I really um, – saw the, the importance and value of education and, yes, schooling, but also community-based education um, as a way to, to, to organize communities. And so that's, I think, how I first got interested the, in education. the degree you were studying for was history. That's right. And is that the degree that you obtained finally? Correct. That's right. I, was, I, I had a very non-traditional path into education, so well, I, I, I did. I think that's a great positive, if yeah. I may add. Mm -hmm. But we'll come back to that a little later. I did. I studied history, um, graduated, and then had the opportunity to go back to Ecuador. I was very driven to get back there, and I lived in the capital city in Quito for a year. Um, I had a Rotary scholarship to live there for a year, and I very much at that point wanted to, to try out um, working as a teacher. And so I, I worked at a community-based school. It was a parent-led school. Um, and I worked as a teacher in their elementary school, teaching ESL, and I also taught adults there. And so that and that was just another incredibly transformative experience. Tell um, me a little bit about this, because I don't know what a community-based school run by parents yes, is. That, because that sounds pretty positive, but I've seen a lot of input that parents have towards demanding what their students learn as opposed to what educators may think. Is there a – tell us about that. Sure, sure. I think, I mean, in this case, certainly there were um, some community leaders who played a big role in this. Um, it was in a, a very marginalized community on the outskirts of the, the city of Quito, and it was this group of, of educators and community organizers who brought – folks together, parents together, to, to form the school. So parents played different roles in the school. Some were teachers. Some played other kinds of support roles in the school. They didn't um, sort of control the curriculum at all. But, well, yeah, the curriculum was exactly. They, they had a role in the curriculum, but, it, but also because it was a um, kind of an independent school, in a sense, they were able to develop their own curriculum. So that was one of my roles there was actually to develop the, the English as a second language or English as a foreign language curriculum for the elementary school. And it was just what a great experience. I was, you know, 24 years old and able to, to take on already this kind of role. So I learned so much um, at that school. Yeah. Yeah. And then I had a chance. I mean, you, you haven't asked this, but I um, that was just a year. So I, at the time, connected with an organization that was supporting that school, an organization in the United States 
um, that was an international literacy organization called Pro Literacy Worldwide. And they were providing some seed funding to this school in Quito to do this community-based education work. Um, and I learned about their programs, got very, very interested, talked to the um, directors there and, and ended up um, working for that organization as as a program officer and a Latin American programs coordinator. And that oh, was oh, just... That sounds very official. T- tell me, <laughs> yeah. is there, was there a, an age limit to the schooling? Was it for just younger kids or all the way through 18 Great years old? Great question. It was elementary um, and, and middle school. So it actually went up until sixth grade. So it's really the equivalent of elementary here. And then they had programming for adults um, as well. So it, that was the, yeah, that was kind of the age range. And what was the biggest problem of having a school of that nature where where you were, which is independent, presumably, of state funding? Mm-hmm. I think probably, like with many um, nonprofits and mm-hmm. civil society organizations, it was always needing to generate income. It sounds like a radio yeah. station. Yeah, it sounds like <laughs> a lot of organizations, right? So that, you know, needing to, to generate income. They had some self-sustaining projects that they um, were involved with to, to try to, you know, have sources of income, but they also, you know, relied on other, you know, nonprofits and foundations. Okay, so you had a wonderful set of experiences, but then you came back... Yeah. To presumably train to a certain extent as a teacher? As I said, I had a non-traditional pathway. And so actually I came back and worked for four years with this adult literacy organization. And in that role, I was um, really working to support programs, community-based education programs across Latin America. And so there was a technical assistance aspect to it, a teacher training to some extent aspect to it. These are community-based programs that were based in in um, often rural, marginalized communities um, across the region. And so uh, it, I did um, grant writing, fundraising, technical support, had a chance to travel and get to see and know these programs from Mexico all the way to Bolivia and Chile. All these uh, activities are wonderful training for a faculty position here at UTL Paso on the border. You know, I didn't know it at the time, no, but you're exactly but right. It, it just strikes me that you were made for this institution. Uh, that's what it feels like sometimes. I, it really does feel like there is. it is um, just an incredible fit. And actually, it was in that role I started. That's where some of the questions started coming up and learning from these community-based educators across the region and the work they were doing. I started to get more questions about um, about community-based education, about literacy. And so that's when I went back to graduate school. Um, and I, I went back... Uh, to study literacy specifically in international context. That was my my focus and, and the work of community-based um, educators. I was very interested in ethnography, I mean, which, you know, based on this early experience of living in, in an indigenous community and um, having questions about culture and language. Um, and so that's, so I got trained um, very much in an, from an ethnographic lens and then also um, from a kind of practitioner inquiry lens, so kind of bringing those together. So what, how teachers think about their practice, how they reflect on their practice to get better. I saw that a lot in the work with these Latin American educators, just the ways in which they were engaging in this critical collective um, reflection on their practice, working with communities, um, you know, really working in a way for education connected to community development to make people's lives better. Just to sort of interject a question, at a university like ours, University of Texas at El Paso, it's a big institution in a relatively large urban environment. 
What interactions do you think there should be between the educators and the community? I, think I mean, I can see we could serve as a resource to answer questions, but the other way around, what, what's the role of the community in shaping this institution? And I think UTEP has a really unique history, right, in connection with this community. And I think we're very, very deeply connected to our community. And so I, it also depends on on the the college, on the discipline, and the College of Education. Our role is very much to respond to our community, and we are shaping educators in the College of Education. Right. So we are, in, in that way, um, very much working in service to the community in service to Do the school districts. Do you have much of an interaction with parents? That's I can see you how you can interact with the teachers. You're training them and sure. they come for extra courses, but the actual parent. You know, that's a great question and it's probably not most immediately in my role, but I will say as part of our training of teachers and preparation of teachers, we have a responsibility to make sure that our teacher candidates are very well prepared to interact with parents and have awareness about what that means. And so that is a big part of our curriculum and something that we want them to um, know about and be adept at so that they can have meaningful interactions with parents. And in a sense, we're lucky because most of your products, if I can kill you that, the graduates, are from the area to begin with, so they've got a better understanding perhaps than if we were having to import teachers uh, from elsewhere. That's exactly right, and that's one of our real strengths. So we've, we've learned a little, or quite a lot actually, about your varied past and, and, and how you're growing up with relatives and grandparents, fathers born in Brazil, which pushed you to learn Spanish, which I really enjoy the thought of. Um, now you're here on the faculty at the University of Texas, El Paso. So as with all of our faculty colleagues and friends, we've got to decide what to do. You know, it's one thing to sort of struggle very hard, get a position that you really relish in theory before you get to it, sitting down that first day or that first week in an office with a chair, nowadays with a computer, and then think, my God, what, what, what am I doing here? What have I got to do to succeed? So tell us what went through your mind, how you developed your research career and how you later developed an interest in administration. Yeah, I think, you know, I'm, I'm lucky that I'm in the College of Education. And so there's such an applied aspect to our work. And so I'm, I love research. I loved being trained as a researcher and engaging in research. And I very much um, just appreciate and love the applied aspect of our work. And so I think that's something that, that um, pushed me early on was to try to bring together the two sides of our work, research and practice. And it's not something that I've completely, you know, figured out. Uh, uh, you know, it's still That's part good of to hear because still part of the journey. Otherwise, it would be quite sterile. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, this is is, and I think in education, particularly, that's that's part of the tension, right? Is the theory practice, research practice, tension, and um, the tension I feel every time I walk into a new class. You'd think after all the years of doing this and, and knowing the subject matter pretty reasonably well and keeping up with the developments, but I still, it's not exactly butterflies in the tummy, but it's, it's, it's a, there's something there that sort of makes you realize that you've still got the passion because you want to learn from the student and also teach. So it's good.
Exactly. I mean, that's exactly um, the experience that I had and still have. And, you know, as a as a young faculty member, I'm lucky to have great colleagues. It was in a, in a supportive environment. And so I was able to grow my, my research um, agenda over the time that I was a junior faculty member. And really after earning... Oh, hang on. Oh, tell, yeah. tell, <laughs> us, tell us then what is what was that agenda? Sure. What did you first discuss to yourself or with yourself and then write proposals? What, what little corner of teacher education? Sure. Well, um, actually, part of my my agenda was influenced by an earlier experience I had prior to coming to UTEP. I lived in Mexico for three years. I did one year of dissertation research there. And then for two years, um, I taught at a university in Mexico City. And I taught second language writing. So I was teaching English, essentially. And that, so I was, became very interested. You know, I had part of me that was interested in community-based education, and that's what my dissertation research was on. And then there was a part of me that was interested in academic literacy, so how you sort of develop the reading and writing um, competencies in, in English at, at, at the university level, especially in, in post-secondary contexts. And so that's during my early years at UTEP. It was really kind of both of those really disparate strands of, of research. I um, continued to, to work on um, my research in community-based education, but got more and more interested as time went on um, in the ways in which, you know, in the educational trajectories of our students here at, at UTEP. So, Tell me what you mean by an educational trajectory. <laughs> yeah, I think well, I know, but I'm not sure that I got it correctly so in my mind. In particular, very interested in what contributed to the success. So I was always interested. Ah. Not, I mean, there's a lot of research out there on barriers, especially the barriers faced by underrepresented students. I was became very interested in STEM fields. I, there were some opportunities to be part of interdisciplinary teams working in the College of Engineering and the College of Science. Um, and so looking at the experiences of students who were successful, um, and in this case, engineering specifically is one of the areas we looked at. And so what contributed to this success? We know that being, uh, that there are some particular kind of, um, you know, favorable conditions that we have here um, at UTEP being an HSI and there's, you know, and, and the faculty that we have and the awareness that exists on our campus. And so there was there, that's one of the things that, I mean, that's one of the several different things that we looked at, but what were some of the conditions that contributed, um, have contributed to student success here, okay. specifically in engineering, where we see sometimes right. high levels that, of attrition. That, that, and I'm sure if, <laughs> when I learn what these are, I'll see whether or not they're applicable to the sciences. So be specific. What are some of the key features that can tell you that this is going to lead to more success than, say, failure? So one key feature, and it's not going to be a surprise, is mentors. Mm -hmm. So, how, And that's faculty mentors. Yes. Faculty play a tremendous role in shaping the success of students. And um, you can see it. It can cut two different ways, but in this case, looking at student success, it's encouragement from faculty members, even just afraid, you know, I believe in you, that those kinds of things, those micro interactions make all the difference. And the problem with that is because you're absolutely right. And I mean, yes, but, but it's an incredibly expensive format. You need to have plenty of time to develop an interaction with a student in order to be able to mentor. 
I mean, if it's just saying, hey, good luck, and, you know, everybody says that. So a true mentor needs time and a long-term process. But we can't afford that. I think that's a great point. Well, so our work has been on undergrad, has been focused on undergraduates. So we're not even talking about necessarily mentorship that we would see kind of at the the doctoral level. And even within, I think that what we've learned in some of the work that we've done is that there's structures that can be put into place that these kind of mentoring-like structures that can be put into place to support students that maybe are more efficient uh, cost-wise. That's one. And then the other is that the smallest of interactions matter. So not necessarily the intensive mentoring that you would see, necess- you know, like in a, in a PhD program, right. but mentorship that happens, you know, a word of support being being available and accessible to mm-hmm. students. That's right. something that really matters um, to our students. And then on the flip side, students take adva- need to take advantage of it. So this approach, of, especially, I didn't know you were interested in the STEM aspects. Uh, um, what lessons can be learned to facilitate success in STEM. You have this success. You did it for many years. And now I gather you actually hold the title of an associate dean of the College of Education. Tell us what that's all about and why on earth would you do it? Uh, So it was kind of a meandering pathway or to, to, to get to this role. Actually, early, but prior to becoming associate dean, um, and the the title is associate dean of undergraduate studies and educator preparation, Um, so real focus on teacher preparation and on our undergraduate program. But prior to that, I served as department chair, really co-chair of the Department of Teacher Education, and really kind of fell into that role and, and learned so much about um, working with colleagues, about curriculum. Um, and I think it was really in that role that that became a stepping stone, not necessarily intentionally, um, but became became a stepping stone. Well, why did you become an associate chair or a co-chair? co-chair. Was that because it was expected or because you made a, an effort to walk in that direction? I, I will say that there, I, it wasn't something that I was necessarily looking for, mm-hmm. um, but it just happened at the right time. There was an, the the possibility came up, and I was inspired to work with my colleagues. And there were some curriculum things that we that wanted to do, and so it was really that that led me into this role. We had gone through a restructuring, and we had split the department into two divisions, which is why we had this co-chair role, really one department, two divisions. What um, the divisions? The divisions were the so I was um, co-chair um, and director of the division of bilingual education, early childhood literacy, and sociocultural studies. So it's a long name. And then we also had a STEM education division. So we it's a large, teacher education is, 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 a, is a relatively large department. And so this helped with some of our processes and, and, and operations to have it split into two divisions. All of the teachers I had as a student from, well, let me say certainly from 11 to 18, all of them without exception had degrees in science or whatever the subject matter was. So the geographer, the physics teacher, butler, the chemistry teacher, proveneers, I remember them all. They were all extremely good at what they did. But none of them had any training as teachers, right? And the same is true today. I I don't know if that's true or not. Because it seems to me, and I know people who've got into teaching who 
have been with degrees in chemistry that have had a lot of problems getting a position because they say, well, we've got to take an extra year of coursework or something like that. Talk about this business. Actually, it's not entirely correct to say the same ah, is true. So, the, But what is true, what is, what is similar, is that um, for somebody to become a high school uh, chemistry teacher, they do need to, or science teacher, math teacher, whatever, English, whatever the, the content area is, that they do need to major in the discipline, and then they minor in secondary education. And so um, they do get very much immersed in the content because that is their academic major. Um, and then they do take a, just a handful of courses in education. Um, so that is something that is so true today. So that's the norm. That is the right norm. Now. But in on in the those who major in education, so if they're interested in becoming an elementary teacher, a middle school teacher, different content areas, or a special education teacher, they major in education, and they have a very different kind of experience um, in, in their their training. They they do very much, especially for the middle school candidates. They they do get immersed in the content. They take classes in across disciplines mm-hmm. at the university, um, but they also have the chance to do a year-long residency, which so, we can talk so about. So I was a little incorrect, but I never met but one or two students majoring in chemistry who were in the educational line also. So tell me, we're having a poor supply of science teachers, I imagine. So I'm glad you bring that up. This, there's definitely a high need for high school science and math teachers. And we do we do have, I mean, we have, um, there are high needs in, in different areas as well, bilingual education, special education, but certainly math and science um, are, are and areas. what are we doing to try to correct that? That's, I'm glad you asked that. There's quite a few initiatives out there. Um, there's, um, I've involved in one project that's a Noyce Scholars um, program oh. that's led by Dr. Amy Wagler in the College of Science. And so just a great way to, you know, recruiting folks into, um, you know, who are, who are interested in science and math and want to do a secondary okay, education so minor. So there's lots of initiatives out there, but we've got more work to do. We've Lovely. got more work to do. We only got a minute left, Erica, or something like that. What do you do for yourself? What are your pastimes when you're not having to be a mother, or, or maybe all your pastimes are associated with being a mother, camping, and I, I don't know what. But what, what do you do for spare time and and to sort of keep yourself as buoyant as you apparently are? Well, I love travel. So as much as possible, I think I've always had that kind of explorer yeah. part of me. So I love travel, um, and I I love to swim. That's what I do to to get um, some mental clarity. Sometimes is is swim laps, okay. um, and then of course spend time with family. All right. So when you say travel, what does that mean? Do you go camping, or do you just uh, book an American Airlines flight somewhere and? see the castles of Europe? It means a lot of different things. Oftentimes in the summer times, it means road trips to Virginia to visit family or um, in and through Mexico um, to, to visit my oh, husband's right. side of the family there. And so that just, and then sometimes if possible. So wherever it can be <laughs> yes. done, you will do it. Of course. Erica Mead, it's been a delight talking to you. I hadn't seen you for about uh, five years or 15 years. I don't know what it is. Time goes so fast. Uh, Erica Mead is a professor of teacher education in the College of Education and the associate dean of that large college. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me.
And Paul, thank you, Paul Castro, putting the program together so it sounds as good as it can be. And we'll be back next week with another We Are UTL Paso program. Adios. <laughs>